0: Christians often want to know if different events are signs that we are living at the end of time. People might look at the global pandemic we just experienced. People might look at recent news in the Middle East. People might look at new technology that is able to track personal information. People might Look at these different things that are going on and conclude that we are in the last days. Jesus is returning soon. While possible, I would caution you against firmly concluding that Jesus is returning soon for two reasons. The first is that Jesus said very plainly that no one knows when he will return, he was explicit no one knows. We should be prepared for when he returns, but that is different than saying that we definitively know that he is returning soon. The second reason is given by a careful study of the book of Revelation. It teaches that prior to the return of Christ, God will allow Satan to run amok in an unprecedented way. He will grant Satan authority which will lead to the rise of an antichrist and as well as a surge of demonic activity. God allows Satan this authority as a means to judge the earth. And also, the church will endure a terrible wave of persecution. Then Jesus will return and destroy Satan finally. Now, God's allowance of Satan's authority is not something that humans can figure out all on our own. It will happen when God decides to do so. And from what we see in Revelation, it will be sudden, dramatic, and definitive. At that point, you will not wonder if it is the end of time because things will have shifted quite dramatically. Our passage today is the first indication from Revelation of this dramatic shift that will take place at the end of time. So far, what we've seen in Revelation has been primarily focused on the early church, the first hearers of the book of Revelation. Remember, again, it was written to seven actual churches. We've seen, though, that it has an audience that's meant for all of the church age. Only in Revelation chapter 6 have we seen a description of the end of time. But that description was really kind of a, a depiction of the physical universe unraveling. Today's passage depicts some of the preceding events. And hopefully this will help us understand better what happens prior to the return of Christ. And I need to say from the outset... That our passage before us is both unique and solemn. It's unique in that it is the most in-depth portrayal of demonic forces that you will find in Scripture. And it's also solemn. It's a solemn passage because we read about these demonic forces causing such devastation. Now sometimes people think that Satan is running amok here today. And I would say that, yes, he is active. But I would also say that God greatly constrains him at the present moment. If Satan was given greater authority, knowing his power, knowing his uh, demonic army, things would be far worse. Look at the life of Job. When God allowed Satan to have that type of authority... In one individual's life, it took very little time before his entire life fell apart. Do you see? But God is going to allow Satan to have that type of authority on a global scale right before the end of time. And then Jesus will return. So let me invite you to Revelation 9 as we continue our series on this wonderful book powerful book. Revelation 8, we saw last time, we began what are called the seven trumpet judgments. You remember that? Seven trumpet judgments where seven angels sound in order these trumpets. And trumpets were significant in the Old Testament because they sounded war and judgment was on the horizon. Remember most famously the city of Jericho where the Israelites sounded the trumpet for seven days and then the city wall fell down before they went in to conquer the city. Last time we covered the the first four trumpets that really form a unit. They describe these judgments that God sends upon the physical universe. We saw the four different parts, right? The sky, the rivers, the seas, and the land and how they experience judgment throughout time. And we remember we saw that that number, one-third, that fraction appeared over and over 14 times to symbolize that God's judgments throughout the time between the, return of, or the, the resurrection and the return of Christ is partial. It's not complete. When you get to the bold judgments in Revelation 16, these same four areas, this physical universe, appear, but there's no more fractions at that point. It's complete destruction. But for now, these are symbolizing God's judgments upon the physical universe to try to stir us to repent. Just look, I think it's safe to say, look at what is going on in our country with the droughts in the West and the floods in the South and so forth. Those, I would say, are part of God's trumpet judgments to wake up and stir people. But at the end of Revelation 8, we came across the, th- uh, the fact that there are going to be three more woes. Three woes that are about to take place. A woe was a word of really serious judgment that's going to happen in the future. So in other words, the first four trumpets were serious, but now things are going to get much more serious. Does that make sense? That's where we're going today. We're going to look at more of these trumpet judgments, but they're going to escalate. We're going to look at two trumpet trumpet judgments today, all of chapter 9. And then next time, we're going to see the last trumpet judgment, which is the return of Jesus. So next week, we're going to cover chapters 10 and 11, which I don't think I've ever covered two chapters before (laughs) in all of my preaching. But I'm going to do it next week because I think it all fits together. So again, this is all part of what happens when Jesus returns. This composite picture, these different events that all point to what happens when Jesus returns. So again, we're looking at what are some of these preceding events here. Let's look at the fifth trumpet, verses 1 and 2, Revelation chapter 9. It says And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. So to start, John sees this star fallen from heaven to earth. This is not a heavenly body, but it's an angel. Remember how angels are actually called stars in Revelation 1. And so this angel is given the key to the bottomless pit. Now in Scripture, the bottomless pit referred to the place where fallen angels were placed, were restrained in some type of capacity. They weren't a- able to operate they would like to. You remember the story where Jesus encountered the man who had the legion of angels and the and the and the uh, excuse me, a legion of demons, and the demons fall before Jesus and they beg him not to cast them into the bottomless pit before the time. They didn't want to be restrained in some capacity right? They knew that they didn't want to go there. But at the end of time, fallen angels included Satan will be cast into hell forever. But for now, they're in this bottomless pit. Now before going on, we need to talk about the identity of the angel that opens the bottomless pit. Some argue that it's Satan. that's certainly possible because we know that he was created good, but that he fell because of his sin. That's possible, but I lean to think that it's actually a good angel. A good angel who comes from heaven, meaning he is sent from heaven. God gives him authority. What does he put in his hand? A key, right? Showing authority to go down to the bottomless pit. Why? God is bringing judgment on earth and uses these demons as his agents of Judgment. Again, he is giving them more authority than they presently possess for this brief moment before Jesus returns. Let's see what happens next in verses 3 to 6. It says, Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. So from this bottomless pit come locusts. In case you don't know, here's a picture of a locust kind of cute, right? (laughs) That's not what's going to come out of the bottomless pit. These are not actual locusts. They look nothing like locusts, right? And they don't eat vegetation, which is what locusts eat. These are demons. These are demons. So we're going to see in verse 11, their king is Satan. You say, well, why are they called locusts? Well, in the Old Testament, which again, the, Revelation, the book of Revelation constantly builds upon, locusts were agents of judgment that God used. In the, in the book of Exodus, one of the plagues that God sent upon Egypt was what? Locusts to devour the vegetation there. In the book of Joel, when God sent judgment on the nation of Israel, He sent what? A horde of locusts upon them. And you see a lot of the same language from Joel here as well as Revelation. So now God sends this in a greater fashion. These locusts, these supernatural locusts, if you will, they don't eat vegetation, but they will harm those who, what, do not have the seal of God. We saw that back in chapter 7, the sealed of God. Those are the church, that is the church, those who will not fall away. They have been protected by God. They will persevere to the end. Not that they won't experience affliction, but God has set a seal on them and they will not be lost. God will keep them till the end. So all of the rest, these demonic creatures, God allows them to torment for five months. You say, why five months? I say, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe it's a literal five months. Maybe it's symbolic of a short period of time. But regardless, these days will be brief. But they're going to be awful. The demons will not kill, but they will torment. John compares it to a scorpion sting. Now, I decided not to show a picture of a scorpion because I didn't know somebody here might have arachnophobia or whatever, and we didn't want you (laughs) passing out. But, you know, you should be thankful if that is you, that you live in Connecticut, because if you lived in a lot of other parts of the world, you would not have a happy life. I was talking to my dad yesterday. He served in the military in Iran, and he said it was common over there that whenever you would uh, put on your shoes, you would make, first shake them out to make sure there was no scorpions sitting at the bottom waiting for you. That'd be kind of rough, wouldn't it? <laughs> Thankfully, we don't have that in Connecticut. But anyway, with scorpions, I did a little research. There are about 1,750 species of scorpions, but only about 20 are lethal to people. So the vast majority of them will not kill you if they sting you, but certainly they will ruin your day. You will have a lot of pain and other, perhaps, symptoms. Likewise, these demons, God does not grant them the authority to kill people, but they will be allowed to torment I don't think it's a physical stinger he's talking about there, but they are allowed to sort of exacerbate the spiritual anguish that people have who do not know Christ. They're allowed just to kind of add fuel to the flame and it causes them to be miserable so much so that they seek death and they can't even find it. They walk around in kind of this state of living death. This language echoes what we saw back in Revelation 6 that also described the end of the world. Remember how when, when Jesus comes back, how people were literally at the place because they didn't want to face the wrath of God, that they crawl, call out to the rocks and to the mountains, fall on us because we'd rather die than to face the wrath of God. That's the sort of just hopelessness and the, and the sense of just torment that people are experiencing in their own spirits at this point. So again, I think all of this happens at the end of time. The the release of these demons begins it and the return of Christ completes it. Let's read next about their appearance in verses 7 to 12. It said, In appearance the locusts were like, Horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair. And their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates that had breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. What a vision here. So John uses these different visions and images to describe them. Perhaps they look this way exactly, or perhaps John is, is just doing his best with symbolic imagery to try to communicate what they look like. In the passage, you saw how many times does he's used the word like there, right? And Eleven times in the whole chapter. He, he's trying to describe what they are like. He describes them as looking like war horses perhaps symbolizing their power. Their faces are like humans, perhaps symbolizing that these are highly intelligent creatures. Their hair is like women's hair. I have no idea really what that means. Their their teeth are like lion's teeth, perhaps symbolizing their ferocity. They wear a crown, perhaps symbolizing their authority at this time to carry out this task. They wear breastplates of iron, perhaps symbolizing invincibility. They have wings that make an incredibly loud noise. They have these tails and stings like scorpions. Regardless of what they look like exactly when these creatures finally make their appearance at the end of time, one thing is for sure is that they are absolutely swift, powerful, and vulnerable, and unstoppable to the human creation. No human army could stand a chance against them. John also mentions that they have a king. Who is that king? Well, they say his name is, in Hebrew, Abaddon. In Greek, it's Apollyon. You say, why those two languages? Those are the two languages that the Bible was primarily written in. But both names, those two words there, they convey the idea of destruction. This is what's going to be taking place here. And this king is Satan. This is who is going to be leading this army. So the fifth trumpet closes with this transition. It says, The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. And this leads to the next woe, the sixth trumpet. Let's read about it in verse 13 and following. It says, Then the sixth trumpet blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who were bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number, and this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound." So this sixth angel blows his trumpet and a voice speaks. And since that voice commands the angel, I would say that that voice is probably the voice of Christ. And he tells this sixth angel to release the four angels who were bound at the great river Euphrates. There's a whole lot going on with that sentence right there. So to start, the four angels, those are probably demonic angels, because when you look at in scripture, you never see where good angels are bound, but you do see where demonic angels are bound. In Jesus' ministry, he alluded to binding Satan so that he could plunder him and release people from his captivity. In Revelation 20, it talks about Satan being bound. So I don't think these are good angels, these are demonic beings that have been bound, except now at this time, they are being released. And what they instantly go do is they mobilize this massive demonic army. It said there that number. some say it equates to 200 million, 200 million. That might be symbolic, that might be actual, but whatever it is, it is an enormous amount of demons. And we're given a description of their horses, which, like the locusts, are not normal horses. They have heads like lions, and out of their mouths come fire and smoke and sulfur. And if that weren't bad enough, they have tails like serpents that wound people. And now we see where they have the authority, whereas in the fifth trumpet they they did not, they're allowed to take life, a third of humanity. Now it's possible that they're able to kill people directly or it's possible as demons like to do they deceive humans and mobilize humans so that we go about killing each other in warfare or whatever. Now you might be saying what's what's going on with the Euphrates River? Why is that mentioned? Well this river formed the eastern boundary to the promised land and whenever nations would come and invade Israel they would cross over the Euphrates River like Babylon and Assyria and so forth, I think John is taking that imagery, he's using it symbolically to describe this demonic army that not only attacks uh, humanity in general, but here at the end will also launch an attack, a huge, enormous wave of persecution against the people of God. We're gonna see this, in fact, in Revelation chapter 16 that gives us more of a picture here. It's what people call the Battle of Armageddon, where you see Satan, where you see the Antichrist, where you see demonic hordes, where you see human armies all mobilized to launch this kind of one great offensive against the people of God in a massive wave. Revelation 16:12 says: the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. It goes on to talk about the kings of the world who were gathered for, quote, battle on the great day of God the Almighty. So this demonic army is able to deceive and to mobilize the the nations of the world to engage in this battle. But when they do, they are destroyed by the return of Christ. Christ. Utterly remarkable. All of Satan's armies. All the armies of the world. And when Jesus returns, he destroys them like that. It's interesting... In Revelation 6, 17, which also talked about the end of the world, it called it the great day of their wrath, speaking of Christ and God. The great day of their wrath. There in Revelation 16, 16, 7, uh, it it is called the battle of the great day of God the Almighty. It's not a great day for Satan. It's a great day for God. As he stands victorious, finally defeating Satan and his foes. Again, I think that's all speaking of one great event that's going to be coming about. We're going to see this again and again in the book of Revelation, these different snapshots pointing to what what takes place when Christ returns. Sadly, we read about the response of the rest of humanity to these trumpet judgments. Let's close out our passage here in verses 20 and 21. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up, their, give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk nor did they repent of their murders or their sor- sorceries or their sexual immoralities or their thefts. Now John, I don't believe it's saying that these people here worship demons in an outright explicit way. Demons are deceptive, so what they do is they create idols to distract and to draw people away from the worship of God, right? It's not like they're necessarily worshiping Satan outright, but they have been deceived into worshiping, drawing people away from the one true God. Paul hints at this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, or 10, verse 20. He says, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God, I do not want you to be participants with demons. And in our day, demons are just as active in creating all kinds of non religious idols that people fling or cling to and chase after, right? That all kinds of things like career and money and pleasure and so forth, that's the center of their lives. It is so foolish to chase after idols, friend. They don't give you life, they can't create you, and they certainly cannot redeem you. God can, though. Amen. But sadly, people do not repent in the midst of all of these plagues. I think John is referring to all six of the trumpets so far. So what he's getting at is whether, hey, now in the present time, in those first four jump, uh, trumpets, when there's just this ongoing Things that God sends upon the earth, people look around, they see these things, and they don't repent. But even at the very end of time, when things get really crazy and intense, people still will not repent. Some do, we'll see that in Revelation 11, that some do repent. But in large part, people are like Pharaoh when he kept getting these plagues launched upon him in the book of Exodus, he refused to repent despite seeing all of this stuff. People have a remarkable capacity to harden themselves, don't they? Whether it's through indifference or just outright rejection. They always have an excuse. I'm too busy, right? I'm too busy to think about these things. Or God's not really like that. God wouldn't be that way. Or, you know what? I'm pretty sure I get another chance. I'm going to come back around and maybe I'll get it right then. So they put it off. Put it off. Always saying there's another time, another occasion. I don't want to repent. I don't want to get right with God today. Are you right with God today? I read this past week about a man named Harry Truman. Not the president, but another gentleman. He lived in the state of Washington. Let me fill you in a little bit more about Harry Truman. In 1980, Mount St. Helens gave clear indications that it was about to erupt. One expert said the chances of a major eruption was, was nearly 100%. Well, Truman lived at the foot of the mountain, and in fact, he lived in the pathway of the most likely flow of lava that was going to come from Mount St. Helens. Despite evacuation orders, pleased by his family, Truman refused to live. In fact, he actually kind of attained a celebrity status for a little while. He would not flee the destruction that was about to happen to him. On May 17th, officials tried one last time to get him to leave his place. He refused. On May 18th, the volcano erupted. Truman died as a flow of of volcanic debris 150 feet high streamed down the mountain at speeds of up to 90 miles an hour. Let me encourage you today not to harden your heart, but to take seriously the warnings of Scripture. God is sending judgments now, and one day things will get worse. Do not harden your heart if God is speaking to you today. Instead, respond like a man who was named Ricky McAllister. As a college student, Ricky received a New Testament from the Gideon's ministry. I don't believe he actually ever read it. But he decided to go on a fishing trip, and he put it in his belongings for good luck. Well, for two days, he experienced no bites. He was having an awful time. And so he was hanging out with his buddies, cooling off from the sweltering temperatures. His friend, who was bored, started reading from that New Testament. McAllister heard the words actually from Revelation chapter 9, the very passage we're using here today in front of us, and the message deeply impacted. He literally started shaking and said, Hey, guys, I want to go home. So while his friends packed... He started reading the Bible. He went home. The next night, he went to church with his girlfriend and believed in Christ as his Savior and Lord. He later went on to serve the Lord in Bolivia and became a pastor. He would go on to tell people that he was led to the Lord by a swarm of locusts. if you've not believed in Christ as your Savior and Lord, today, make that decision. Confess your sin and believe that Jesus is fully God who also became a man who died on the cross to pay for your sins so that you would not face judgment yourself, but that you would receive eternal life. And one final word for Christians You know, in the midst of all of this evil that we read about here in this passage, you might wonder: Does God lose control? Right? Is this an unstoppable demonic army? Is that too much for God? Does that mess up His plan? Actually, they're part of His plan. Did you notice that the four angels who muster that army are prepared for what? Did you notice very carefully what it says? The specific hour, day, month and year uh, the the plan of god and its specificity is astounding god is in total control total control and so if god is in total control of an unstoppable unbelievable demonic army I think we can rest assured, going from the greater to the lesser, that He is in control of our world today. Amen? And He is in control of your life. He is in control. He is in control now. He will remain in control, and he will be in control for the rest of eternity. Let our hearts be at peace and not anxious and not in fear about what today holds or what the future holds, because God is in control, and he simply desires that his people would trust him. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, this morning we want to acknowledge our deep trust in you, that you are indeed control in control of all things. And that even the enemy, with all of its power and might, might that we can't even fathom, that would instantly destroy us, Lord, pales in comparison to who you are. We thank you, God. And help us to have a heart that is full of trust today. And for Christians, wherever they sit, wherever things stand with them, whatever might bother them, perturb them here in this moment, help them to be reminded of this awe-inspiring vision of you and how you control all things. And Lord, my prayer is that For someone who doesn't know you, Lord, that they would not harden their heart, that they would repent today. Just as these trumpet judgments tell us to do, that they would look around and see these things taking place and recognize that there is time to take advantage of that time, to recognize that you are a God of justice not to be trifled with. But you're also a God of infinite mercy and love who has made a way of salvation through Jesus Christ and as we said earlier, through Him alone. I pray that they would call upon the name of Jesus and be unashamed of that name to declare His name that I am a follower of Christ and I'm giving my whole being to Him. He is my Lord. He is my Savior and I will follow him all of my days. Lord, we pray that you would open hearts to receive you today and to follow you. We love you and we thank you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.